So we're going to be in Isaiah 42 this morning. So during this Advent, we've been looking through some of the prophecies found in Isaiah. And this week, we'll be looking at Isaiah 42. And during this time, um, Isaiah is, is writing about um, a time when, when Israel is going to be uh, set free from captivity in, in Babylon. And so he is giving them hope and, and prophesying a hope and future of what God is going to do. And that's what we are doing during the Advent season. It's a season of waiting and anticipating. We remember what it was like to wait and anticipate God's deliverance through the Messiah. And now we reflect back on that and we are waiting yet again for Christ's return. So he has come and he is coming again. The kingdom is here, is at hand, and it is yet to come. And so we both want to rejoice in the coming of Christ at Christmas and also be reminded of the, the awaiting of his return. And so this morning, what I want to do is we just want to kind of dive into Isaiah 42. Is I want to, I want to look at um, three main things. One is what, what he is going to do. What does God promise in this passage that he is going to do? How will he go about it? And how can we be so sure that what he has said will come to pass. So what, he's, what he will do, how he will do it, and how we can be so sure and confident that he will fulfill these promises. And then I want us to be reminded in our response to that of what he has done in us, he wants to do through us. And so Christmas isn't just something we remember, it's, it's a reminder then of how we are called to live as people who know that Christ has come and he will come again. Isaiah 42, I'm going to read some of these verses and then we're going to look at those questions and then see how we respond. Verse, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth, to the, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Father, help us as we look at this passage. Help us to see how glorious are your promises. Let us marvel at what we see you promising and how we see you going about it and how we can be so confident in what you have said. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So what will he do? 
In these passages, in this passage, we see um, three main things that God promises he will do for his people. The first one is he will bring justice. Look at what he says. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So he promises this Messiah and he says the Messiah will bring justice. He says in, in verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. This is probably the biggest accusation of God in our culture. Where is the justice? If God is real and if he is good, then why do I look around at a, a broken world? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much pain? And I get it. I get that people would look around and think, why do the wicked prosper? That's what the psalmist would often lament about, looking around and saying, God, I look around and I don't really see evidence all the time that you are in control and that you are good. And so sometimes we think that maybe God is asleep at the wheel or he doesn't really care about justice. He gets painted in our culture as weak or apathetic or evil. And this certainly would have been the feeling of some of the people of Israel who had just come out of exile in Babylon. God, where have you been? Why do you let these things happen? And God says through the prophet Isaiah, justice is coming. What does that mean? Well, in part, it means that all things will be made right in his timing. It means that no sin will go unaccounted for. Nothing done in darkness will remain there. Jesus said, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Think about that. What I've found is that when people think about the world and look at the world outside and say, Well, where is God in the midst of all this pain and suffering? We talk about big picture things, but what I have found, at least in, in my experience, is that you, me, and others around us it really boils down to, God, where are you in the injustice in my own life? We've, we grieve over the injustice in the world, and that does weigh on us, but nothing weighs quite so heavily as when we ask in our own lives, God, where are you? Where is the justice? Think about what Jesus is saying here. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Anything that you think others have gotten away with, they haven't. Anything you think you have gotten away with, you haven't. Even the evil, even the evil that we know about in the world, even when people are caught in, in their sin and, and it's against the law and they're convicted and they're sentenced, even our forms of justice, even when our systems of justice work um, as well as they possibly can, they still cannot satisfy. They are limited. Our ability to exact justice on earth is limited, but God's is not. And he says he will bring forth justice. And when he says that, he means that it is complete and it is full and it is satisfying. He will do it. 
What do you grieve over? What do you look around and say, God, where are you? Why does that happen? He sees. He knows. And he will make all things right. Secondly, this passage says that he upholds his covenant. God says he will give Jesus as a covenant for the people. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So what does that mean? I will give you as a covenant for the people. Well, remember, the covenant that God makes with his people and declares over and over and over again. We touched on this a few weeks ago in our study of James. The covenant that God makes is, you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's his covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. But what do God's people do in response to that covenant? They fail. They fall away constantly. They cannot uphold their end of the covenant. Even here, we'll see it. If you read through these chapters in Isaiah, like basically 40 through 48, if you read, you'll see these promises from God and you will see the response of the people continually questioning, continually wandering, continually falling away, continually chasing other idols and other ways of trying to make their own justice and their own kingdom. They cannot uphold their end of the covenant. But God consistently promises that this covenant will not fail. How is that possible? How can God be just and uphold his covenant with a people that refuse to be faithful? Well, what we observed here, Jesus said, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is Jesus doing? He is upholding the covenant by his blood. In other words, God is upholding both ends of the deal. You ever think about that? Think about how many covenants you have made on this earth and where either you have failed or the person you made covenant with has failed. And God looks at his lost and adulterous people and he says, I will uphold both ends of the covenant. We can't do that, right? Many of you in this room know what it's like to have tried to hold up part of a covenant only to have the other side be broken. And many of you in this room know the pain of if you could have upheld both ends, you would have. But you and I can't. But God can. Through Jesus, the promise of this Messiah, he is upholding both ends of the covenant. And through the Holy Spirit, we are made new and empowered to live out the covenant, to truly be his people. The light of the world has come so that we might be a light among the nations. And thirdly, he has come to open the eyes of the blind and set free the captives. Open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. 
See, at the time, people would have been thinking very much about physical blindness and, and being set free literally from captivity. They might have even read this and said, okay, if we are free from exile in Babylon, like the, and this is God promising that we'll never be held captive again. And he is making this promise to open the eyes of the blind and to set the captives free. But he does it in a much deeper and more eternal way. We know that Jesus came and healed the blind and that he did this to point to his opening of our spiritual eyes, of giving us sight in our spiritual blindness. The reality that we have been blind to our sin and to our rebellion and the, and the people of God, as they were waiting for the Messiah to deliver them, they were often thinking about delivering, being delivered from these other earthly kingdoms. But what God was actually doing was something far deeper. He was saying, who you need to be set free from are not the Babylonians. It's from yourselves. It's from your desire to be God, your desire to be king. We've been blind to our sin and to our rebellion. And Jesus, the Messiah, opens our eyes that we would not only see our rebellion, but then see his grace. And church, they go hand in hand. You can't see his grace if you don't see your rebellion. And you can't understand your rebellion if you don't see the extent of his grace. That's why a passage that we quote often is Romans 5, where Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. See, look at it, holding up both ends of the covenant. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the most wild, scandalous claims of the gospel. That even though every part of us wants to say that God saves us when we decide we're going to get our life right, when we decide to take steps towards him, that that's when God saves us. We want to be able to do that. But what scripture says is God demonstrates the extent of his love in this, that while you and I were weak and ungodly and dead in our sin, Christ died for us. He was sent as the covenant to uphold both ends. He brings justice through the cross, paying for our sins. He fulfills the covenant through his blood and he has come to open our eyes and to set us free from the tyranny of sin. And that is amazing news. And you wonder, could it get even more amazing? How is that possible? Well, Isaiah mentions something else. Because it's not only what God has come to do, what the Messiah has come to do, but how he does it. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is so powerful. Speaking of the Messiah, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not cry aloud. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. When Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he comes not, like Jeff said earlier, not in power and through grandstanding, but as a servant, quietly and gently. I mean, this is well documented that Jesus Christ came into the world under the radar in a manger in Bethlehem. But we like to pretend that that's where his, his servanthood and his quietness and his gentleness ends. And that after that, he goes around just raising a ruckus and creating all kinds of havoc. But that's not actually how he has come to us. He has come in gentleness and meekness. What does he mean by a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench? Think about a time where you felt convicted over your sin. How do you feel? Think about something that you are grieved over, ashamed of, Maybe you feel beaten down about. Maybe you feel weak or powerless to fight against it. Maybe it's something in your past that every time it comes up, it brings shame and guilt. Do you feel like a bruised reed in that moment? Do you feel sometimes like your faith is flickering, it's barely hanging on? Feel weak? According to Isaiah, what is God's posture towards you in that moment? It's gentleness. He's not harsh with you. He does not shame you. He pours out grace upon grace, and if you truly see it, it will bring out a deep love for him and a desire to abide in him. Think about all the ways that Jesus demonstrates this. The prodigal son that returns to find his father running to him to embrace him. Not to give him a lecture. Not to shame him for what he's done. Not to say, I told you so. But he embraces him and throws a party for him. Think about the sinful woman who is forgiven. I encourage you to read about that in Luke 7. And we look at that and it just makes us uncomfortable. We don't get it because if it was left to you and me to bring justice, I think we would do so harshly. And I think that's demonstrated by how we function in the world. We, with much grandstanding and with much like, I want to be seen as the person who was right. And because that's what we would do, we try to project it onto Jesus and make Jesus into our image. Church, far too often we are known as a condemning people, a judging people, gossiping and defensive. But this is not how Jesus meets captives. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Like, think about it. What do you feel like God must be completely disgusted with you about? What have you done or are doing that you think, God, it just makes him have to plug his nose, turn away, roll his eyes, and get angry with you about. You need to hear that a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Notice, he doesn't say the sin goes unnoticed. 
He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. Everybody has a bad day. Nobody's perfect. I got you covered. He says, no, we will deal with each one of those sins. And he says, I will deal with it on the cross. And I will meet you gently. I will not quench the flickering flame of your faith. And I will not break the bruised reed that is your heart. This should not take away from the weight of our sin. Rather, it should amplify our understanding of God's immeasurable grace and love for his people. So this is for the people who are sitting here right now who feel conviction over their sin. If you are sitting here feeling this weight, listen, God will bring forth justice. He will make it right. All the things that you've tried to make up for and tried to pay back and you failed because you can't, God will make it right. And he is gentle with you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He came for you. What do you think that you have going on that he would be repulsed by? He came for the sick. He came for the broken. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And his call to you is this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the call. This is how he brings forth justice. This is how he keeps covenant with his people. This is how he opens the eyes of the blind. As he gently speaks and says, Daughter, Son, your faith has made you well. Come to him. Don't try to keep making up for things on your own. Stop trying to just day after day say, I'm going to do better today. I'm going to do better today. Come to him and lay it at his feet and let him keep covenant for you. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He does not give up on you. But how do we know this is the way? How is this possible? How can we know that he will do it? Well, he gives that answer. In 42, verse 5, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, that that is my name, my glory, 
I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is making incredible promises. Nothing that man could ever do on their own. Bring justice, keep covenant, open the eyes of the blind, become spiritually like to give spiritual sight. These are things that are impossible for man. And God says, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to do it gently. And we would look at it as humans and say, how is that possible? How can we possibly cast our lot in with you? How can we possibly believe you and trust you and go all in and following you? And God gives the vote of confidence. And it is this, I am the Lord God. In Family Bible Lab this week, we talked about when someone makes a promise and you're trying to figure out how do you know whether you can trust that promise or not? In short, talked about how you can look at what the promise is that's being made or you can look at the one who is making the promise. And with one another, we weigh those two things out, right? Right? Do I trust the person and do I think the promise is possible? We're having a staff Christmas party this evening and Lauren went and we're doing uh, Christmas by Costco, which is awesome. And uh, Lauren went yesterday or two days ago or whenever it was and, and uh, basically like bought a bunch of stuff at Costco and she brought it home and we have like a a portable refrigerator that I use for one day when I get to live in a van down by the river. And, um, and so it's like a 12 volt refrigerator. And so she can go to Costco and load it all up and everything. And we bring it back and we help her unload everything. And I get the refrigerator out and we put it on the garage. And I said, Oh, we should, are we going to unload this? And she goes, no, can we just leave this? And can we plug this in? I was like, sure. She goes, would you, would you take care of that? Would you plug in the refrigerator? Absolutely. Last night, we come home from the basketball game. I walk by the refrigerator. I notice something strange. There's no cable coming out from the refrigerator. And I said, oh, I forgot to plug in the refrigerator. And Lauren said, oh, dearest husband, (laughs) fret not. For Christ has paid for it all. I said a bad word. <laughs> Could have done without that. I'm not going to lie. On a scale of one to ten, this was not a ten bad word, just so we know. Like, it's not, you know, farmers would have been fine with it. Let's just say that. Um, the, the point being that my desire to fulfill the promise and the simplicity of the task is weighed out with my forgetfulness and my inability to follow through. And that's the reality for so many of us. We make commitments all the time and we have to weigh that out with one another and say, okay, what is it you're saying you can do? Are you able to do it? Do you have a desire to do it? Can I trust you? Like, have you proven yourself faithful? And what God says is, I have said these incredible things will happen. You don't need to look to how that's going to happen or how amazing what I've said will happen. All 
all you need to do is look to me. I am the Lord God. I created the heavens and the earth. I formed you out of dust. I made you my image bearer. I spoke all things into existence. And now, he said, the Messiah is coming. I have demonstrated my love for you. That while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Church, whatever God promises will come to pass, you can trust it because he is the Lord God. He is faithful and is faithful to a thousand generations. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He upholds both ends of the covenant. The things he promises are impossible for us to understand. If he told us exactly how he was going to satisfy our desire for justice and exactly how he was going to return and exactly all those things. If he had told us, we would not believe him because it will never fully make sense to us. And so he says, trust me. We can't possibly imagine what he is doing. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He doesn't give us confidence that he will fulfill his promise by telling us exactly how he is going to bring healing to your heart and to your life, how exactly he's going to make all things right, how exactly he is going to bring you to a place that for all eternity you'll be satisfied in his justice and rejoicing in him forevermore. He has just told you, I am the Lord God. And he is demonstrated that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he tells us, this is what I'm going to do. And he says, this is how I go about it. And he says, you can trust me because I am the Lord God. And if that is what he has done for us, and in us. What do you think he wants to do through us now? As through his people, he wants to bless the nations as the light of the world has come and transformed us, that we would be a light to the nations. What do you think he might want us to do? But to declare the good news that this kingdom of justice of upheld covenant by his mercy and grace, of setting the captives free, that we would declare that to a lost and hurting world, that we would declare that God's kingdom is full of justice, that it has been brought by his blood, setting the captives free, that we would testify to the God who does that through our own living testimonies, our own lives, as we live lives where we've been set free from the tyranny of sin, that we lay hold to Jesus Christ. This is why we take time for communion every week, why we put it right in the center of the service. 
We understand that logistically that is quirky. We understand that it can be uncomfortable, but we are just so compelled by this idea that Christ is the center, and we want to declare that over and over and over again. And we don't want to hide from that, and we don't want to downplay sin, and we don't want to tell you that, oh, God just is like a big grandfather. He's just like, ah, don't worry about it. We say, no, he's going to bring justice, but he has also given us a way to be reconciled. And we testify to that, but we do so in the same way as Jesus has, with gentleness. Look at what Peter says. I love the, the parallels between Peter and Isaiah because Peter is writing to the church when they are in exile. Very much like what Isaiah is writing to Israel as they are in exile. And this is what Peter says as the church is in exile and being persecuted. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the re- for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Church, Peter is not in a culture that is being gentle and respectful of the church. And what he says is if you suffer for righteousness' sake, do so and be blessed And then when people say, why are you so hopeful in the middle of this? Give an answer, but do so with gentleness and respect. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, to be above reproach. Jesus has been gentle with you. Are you gentle with others in the same way? Or do you bring shame and condemnation and judgment that Christ has not brought on you. And I know that that is difficult for us because people often are concerned, well, if you just talk about God's grace like that and not like in the heaviness of sin, like we got to keep preaching the heaviness of sin. Let me ask you something. Those times that I just talked about earlier and just had you think about the sin that you have felt convicted over in the past day, in the past week, in the past month, How heavy of a word have you needed to feel that conviction? Probably not very heavy. If your heart is sensitive, your spirit is sensitive to the Holy Spirit, then you don't actually need very much. Simple answer when people say, well, if you just talk about God's grace and Christ's gentleness, then people are just going to take advantage of that and do whatever they want. But the simple answer to that is they never understood or received grace. They saw it as a loophole, a workaround to dying to themselves. Paul deals specifically with this in Romans 2. He says, Do you suppose, O man, who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So no way he's saying this is, I don't have time to go into this whole unpacking, but he's 
turning it. He's talking about these are the people that live according to the world. They've been given over to the desires of their flesh. But then he turns to the people who judge the people who do those things and saying, you that judge others, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? But he says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous just judgment will be revealed. Church, not only are we cautioned and told and set the example of to be gentle with those who are suffering and struggling in sin, but Paul gives a warning. He says, if you are harsh towards them, you are demonstrating that you have not received grace and you are actually storing up wrath for yourself. See, those who take God's kindness and patience as license to do whatever, they are storing up wrath for themselves. Those who receive God's kindness in the Spirit will be led to repentance. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But listen, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is why shame and condemnation and judgment are not the way of the Christian. Not because sin doesn't exist, not because sin isn't a big deal, or that it isn't destructive, and it doesn't wreak havoc, and not because God is not angry and wrathful against sin and the destruction of those who would perpetuate it. It's simply this. Shame and condemnation and judgment do not soften a heart. A hard, impenitent heart is what we all have until the Holy Spirit softens it. That's why we're gentle. The person who is convicted by the Holy Spirit will have their eyes opened and kindness will lead them to repentance. But the person who has a hard heart There are no words, there are no harsh words that can be said that will soften a hard heart. That person stands condemned already and only the Spirit can open their eyes. So that's how we can walk this incredible line that God gives us, this beautiful road where we are a church that takes sin seriously. We don't deny it. We don't say it's no big deal. We don't justify ourselves with Nobody's perfect, and hey, live and let live. That's not what we do. We take sin seriously, and we take the words of Jesus seriously. We take the way of Jesus seriously. And the way of Jesus is that we are not instruments of condemnation, but instruments of deliverance. We are light in the midst of darkness. We are mercy and kindness to the one who is convicted. And our confidence that this is the way will be found in him. That's what I want to just quickly close with is this. This is critical in our culture today as we wait for Jesus to return. We tend to want all the details. We tend to want to make things, like do things that make sense to us in the way that it makes sense to us. 
But there are many things that we are called to that don't make sense to us all the time. We often are caught in this trap of wanting to make Jesus into our own image and say, well, this is how Christianity will spread. This is how the kingdom will come. And we have our own thoughts on how the church will thrive, often through power and influence and legal battles and political elections. But this is not how the kingdom has come. And the question for us is, will we trust the king? Or do we think we have a better plan? And people will often point to, yeah, well, when Jesus returns, he does return in power and glory. Yes, he does. But do you know how Jesus is most referred to in the book of Revelation? As the lamb. He is still the lamb. And we need to be careful about trying to guess and figure out like, okay, well, then this is what it's going to look like. No, we are called to be the church. We are continuing on the ministry of the incarnation where Jesus came and a bruised reed he did not break. In a flickering wick, he did not extinguish. This is so critical for us today. The way of Jesus does not make sense to the world. One very simple example is that overcoming evil with good. If there's anything that Jesus taught and the early church lived out that we struggle with, it is this. We struggle when Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The world says, that's weak. That's a doormat. Jesus says, it's the way. Paul reiterates it. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We think that that sounds naive. We might like it in theory, but we give up on it quickly. Like, okay, I'll try Jesus' way until it's uncomfortable, and then we're taking matters into our own hands. But we have a choice trust our ability to make sense of everything that Jesus commanded us and to be able to figure out exactly how that's going to work out or trust the one who said it. That is what we remember as we anticipate the birth of Christ. We have this incredible, beautiful picture of how God came to deliver the world. And we wait with eager anticipation for him to come again. So let us declare the good news. Let us continue the ministry of Jesus, declaring that the kingdom has come to call people to turn and repent and to do so with gentleness. Let us be a people who do not break the bruised reed who do not quench the flickering wick, but let us also be people who tell them where to find life, who quietly call out to people, turn from your sin, receive his mercy, be reconciled to God. If you are sitting here this morning and you have not yet taken that step of faith, if God is calling you, respond to it. 
Respond this day. Don't quiet that voice that is bringing conviction, but also grace and mercy and offering you reconciliation with God. Turn to him. I'm going to have the worship team come up and we're going to sing a final song. And during that time, I want you to listen. And maybe you have never listened to God. You never listened for his voice. I want to encourage you to do that during this time. And afterwards, we're going to have some people up here to pray with you. Whether it is about taking that step of faith and saying, I want to receive your mercy. I want to belong to you and be reconciled to you. Or maybe it's a prayer of healing. Maybe it's a prayer of saying, God, I just need your peace right now because I don't see how you're going to do this, but I want to trust you. Whatever it may be, we want to pray for you. So I want to give you that notice so that you can respond during the song and ask God, God, are you there? Is this really true? Do you uphold your covenant with me through the blood of Jesus? And feel and experience his gentleness and his strength. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for all that you have done. We are sitting here because of you, whether we recognize it or not. Lord, you have given us life, and in Christ you have given us new life. Lord, let us praise your name. Let us sing. Let us rejoice. Let us declare to the world that we were blind, but now we see. Let us be confident that you will bring justice. You will make all things right. You will persevere and uphold our covenant with you. You will make us new. And Lord, we are in awe of how you do so with such gentleness and kindness. It's just too wonderful. But yet when we look at you and we see the work of your hands, we know that you are God and all that you have said you will bring to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.